Good morning again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, that you are glorious. And we pray, Father, that our uh, stubborn, uh, small-minded, half-hearted hearts uh, would uh, see who you are as we open your word now. Uh, we thank you, Father, for what we've just heard in that song, that even if the whole realm of nature was ours, uh, that would be an offering far too small to offer one as glorious as you are. We thank you that the heart of your glory is your incredible love for us, demanding soul, life, all. And so, Father, we pray that you would wake us from half-heartedness, double-mindedness, uh, lukewarmness. Uh, we pray that you would stir our hearts uh, to make you our one great passion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Blaise Pascal once wrote, however vast a man's resources, he is capable of but one great passion. However vast a man's resources, he is capable of one great passion. Let me ask you, as we start this series together, what is your one great passion? Uh, what is the thing that drives you in life? Uh, let me tell you about a guy with a, a pretty interesting answer to that question. Uh, his name is Lawn Chair Larry. Uh, he came to fame in 1982 in Los Angeles. Larry Walters of Los Angeles, uh, simply known as Lawn Chair Larry. Uh, and here's the uh, quotes from uh, the news article about uh, Larry Walters' moment in the spotlight. He said this, I have fulfilled my 20-year dream, said Walters. Larry's boyhood dream was to fly, but it seemed it wasn't to be. He tried uh, that that path in life in many different ways. For instance, he joined the Air Force, but his eyesight was too poor and it disqualified him from continuing in the training. And so in the end, he just sat in his backyard watching the jets fly overhead. But it was from that backyard that he hatched his weather balloon scheme while sitting outside in his, quote, extremely comfortable Sears lawn chair. Uh, as he sat there, he made the decision and then purchased 45 weather balloons, tying them uh, to his uh, lawn chair, dubbed Inspiration One, and he filled the four-foot diameter balloons with helium. And then he strapped himself into the lawn chair with some sandwiches, some Miller Lite beer, and a pellet gun. Uh, his plan was uh, that he figured he would pop a few of the many balloons when it was time to descend again. Larry's plan was simple. He would sever the anchor that was uh, tying his lawn chair to his Jeep and then he would float up above his backyard to about 30 feet and there he would enjoy a couple of hours of flight, his dream, uh, before coming back down again. But things did not quite work out as Larry had planned. When his friends who were with him cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair from his Jeep, he didn't float lazily up to 30 feet above his backyard. Instead, he streaked into the LA sky as if shot from a cannon. Pulled by the lift of 42 helium balloons, each holding 33 cubic feet of helium, he didn't level off at 100 feet, nor did he level off at 1,000 feet. After climbing and climbing and climbing, he leveled off at some 16,000 feet above his backyard. At that height, uh, the genius that is Larry Walters decided that he couldn't risk any, any, uh, shooting any of the balloons lest he really find himself in trouble. And so he just stayed there, drifting, cold, frightened with his beer and his sandwiches for some 14 hours. Uh, during that time, he crossed the primary approach corridor of uh, LA International Airport where pilots coming into land radioed in this strange sight of Larry floating about on his lawn chair. Eventually, though, he did gather up the nerve to shoot a few of the balloons and he did slowly start to descend. Uh, unfortunately, during the descent, he tangled into power lines, blocking out an entire Long Beach neighbourhood in the process. 
Larry eventually climbed to safety where he was arrested by waiting members of the LAPD. And as he was led away in handcuffs, uh, a reporter who'd been uh, dispatched to cover this daring rescue asked him why he'd done it. Larry's reply, a man can't just sit around. There is Larry's passion, flight, uh, incredible flight above his backyard. Uh, here's the quote again, however vast a man's resources, he is capable of but one great passion. As we move uh, out of the hibernation of lockdown to some sort of life outside of lockdown again, uh, let me ask you, what is the passion that is driving you as we enter this new phase? In the coming weeks, as uh, we uh, continue in our partnership at St Andrews and St Paul's, I want us to look at three remarkable chapters together of One Kings designed to stir your passion again to live wholeheartedly for God. Uh, we need to do this because our tendency, each one of us, is for our passion to grow cold, uh, for our hearts to be half-hearted, uh, for our minds to be double-minded. And so here we have a series that it is designed to stir us again to one great passion to go our God's way. And we're going to look at 1 Kings, it's Old Testament narrative, it's story. So I encourage you to have it open as uh, we look at it together and uh, enjoy the story. Uh, enjoy uh, the, the, the story as it goes along. And all we're really going to try to do as it does uh, is, is we're going to just pause along the way and uh, consider what God is saying to us as we read this story. Now, here we are in 1 Kings, and we're jumping right into chapter 17. So we're jumping in uh, late in the story. Uh, by this stage, God's kingdom, God's people, Israel, has actually split into two. And the story zooms in on the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And, and by this stage, we're up to the third dynasty of kings in the northern kingdom. We're, we're under, if, you, if you've got 1 Kings 17 open there, if you look back at the end of chapter 16, you'll see where we're up to King Ahab. And uh, if you read through the story of 1 Kings, you'll see that God had, uh, as he always had before, uh, spoken his will to his people. He told them how he would have them live. He showed them the way to go. But over time, they dulled their ears to his voice. They cooled their hearts to going his way and they were drifting. And as we read through the story, what we see is that that, that started at the top. It started with the kings. Uh, Read through the book of 1 Kings and you'll see king after king gets the same assessment of their rule. Uh, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, uh, going the opposite way to God. And by the time we reach King Ahab, he is numero uno when it comes to that. Uh, we're told he did more evil than any before him. And it seems by this stage in the kingdom, the northern kingdom, that that for the king and for his people was no big deal. It was no longer a big deal that they weren't really listening to God. It was no longer a big deal that their passions were divided uh, and not for God. Now, one of the examples in Ahab's own life was that he chosen to marry uh, a woman who trusted other gods, not the living God, not Yahweh. Uh, her name, well, her, her name is famous. Uh, Jezebel was her name. And Jezebel had brought in her gods into the northern kingdom, uh, uh, most notoriously the god Baal, who we'll uh, meet as we go through these chapters. And what had happened is uh, initially Baal was there as a sort of a side piece, not really part of the life of uh, the northern kingdom, that over time uh, Baal became the backup god. If we couldn't trust Yahweh to provide what we wanted, we would trust Baal instead and then slowly rather than the backup God Baal took center stage and even had his own temple 
Uh, it seemed that at this point in their history, Israel's history, that Baal was the way forward for Israel rather than uh, the living God, Yahweh. And so that's the scene, that's the context that our story has us in. And in the midst of that context comes my favourite man in all of scripture. Uh, I, I gave my, my son's middle name, is named after this man. Uh, uh, my, my hope was that, uh, that, that Finn would live a life like this man, or at least be an exciting life, as we'll see with, with Elijah, uh, in, into the malaise of a people moving further and further away from God, listening less and less to his voice, comes this bolt from the blue. Elijah the Tishbite, uh, a man moving in the opposite direction of God's people, and as we'll see next week, at, at speed. And so let's look at it together. Verse 1 of 1 Kings 17. Elijah, we're shown here, is moved by what moves God. He's hearing God, he's listening to God, and he's responding to that word. And he desires that in God's kingdom, God be honoured. It's not right that the king thinks it's trivial to move away from God's ways. And so God's man, Elijah, God's spokesman, he's a prophet. He speaks God's word to the people. He calls upon the nation again here. You see what he says? As surely as God lives, says Elijah, as surely as Elijah serves him, the very lifeblood of the land, the, the rain is going to be taken away. God will shut up the sky, the, the sky that they thought Baal provided the rain from, Baal the fertility God, the, the provider God, the God of bumper crops. Uh, the true God has now stepped onto the stage and he says, I'm going to shut up the sky and it will not be reopened. Do you see there? It will not be reopened until God speaks again. God is going to take away this thing that they thought Baal provided. Uh, Baal was a, a, a prosperity God, a God of bumper crops, a God of uh, great economy. <laughs> Now the true God steps onto the stage, he shuts up the sky and he's doing it to show them that their faith in Baal is utterly misplaced. But then, you see there verse 2 of 1 Kings 17, Elijah is then told to run from this scene and, and you've got to wonder why. Is it because, is he running away to hide? Is he running because he's in danger because of this word of judgment he's brought on God's people? Well, yes, in one sense and we'll see the danger he's in next week. But I suspect there's more at play than this. Remember, if you look there, he runs at God's command. God commands him to run. Elijah is God's spokesman. He speaks God's word to God's people. And as he leaves the kingdom, so does the word of God. As he disappears into the Kerith ravine, so does the word of God. You see, there is to be no water in the land, but much worse, there is to be no word from the God of Israel. That is the judgment God brings upon his people who were refusing to listen to him. I wonder if you've ever thought that the absence of God's word is judgment. I mean, God's word can be absent in our lives even without us knowing it. It, it can be absent even when we're hearing it, even when it's in our hands as it may be right now, but because perhaps we've, well, we've stopped listening to it. Perhaps our hearts have grown cold to what we're hearing. And notice the pattern here for the northern kingdom Israel God's word leaves because their hearts had left God long before, as it was with Ahab. Our trust leaves God and we end up relying on other things. It might not be Baal for us, but our passion and our trust and our confidence is, well, not in God and his word to us, but other things. And God says to his people here, Israel, that is no small thing. For it is not a word that has left our life at that point, but the word that sustains us. And without it, we are at a dead end. 
as we'll see more next week. But in complete contrast, not so with Elijah. Here is a man whose life and every step of that life as he runs from this scene to the Kerith ravine seems to be guided by this word that God speaks. Uh, even though, if you look there in verses 3 and 4, that the word that God calls him to obey seems beyond sensible. Uh, here in a land of drought, where there's no rain, there's no provision, he is told that it's going to be ravens who are going to be flying overhead where this brook is, and they're going to provide meat day and night for him. God says, I'm going to uh, cause these ravens, these unclean, seemingly useless birds, to fly overhead day after day and provide what you need. And I'm going to provide this brook for you. It's a huge promise. And yet, do you see it there, verse 5? Elijah believes the word. And so it happens. And the refrain we see all the way through this chapter is, it happens just as the Lord had said. It's such a simple line. And yet, it is for us, as we think about our own hearts, a powerful demonstration that God's word is certain, that his provision, which is gracious to us, can be trusted. But as we reach verse 7, I wonder if you notice this. It's, it's like God's judgment on the land, on Israel, and his protection of Elijah collide. Uh, this brook that had been providing for him uh, naturally over time dries up because there's no rain. Uh, it seems God, the provider, has stopped providing. And yet again, you see there verse 8 and 9, God speaks to Elijah in his situation of need. He speaks the word and he asks him to trust the word. Uh, God tells him this time, do you see what he says? It's, it's even more radical. He says, now I want you to go to Zarephath. I want you to go to a widow there and she's going to provide for you. God seems to be raising the bar higher and higher, asking Elijah to trust him. Uh, uh, ravens may be, but a widow providing. Uh, all the way through the scripture, the scriptures, uh, it's the widows who are provided for. And now God is reversing that. Uh, God seems to be choosing the most unlikely sources of provision for his man, Elijah. And yet, do you see again, Elijah trusts him. He hears the word of his God and he trusts it. It's an unlikely promise and yet it happens just as God has said. Now I want to, uh, us to pause here and take a closer look at this widow, this widow of Zarephath. Uh, she is one of the most amazing uh, people in the Bible. Uh, everything about her is amazing. Uh, so amazing is she that uh, by the time we get to Luke chapter 4, Jesus name drops this widow. <laughs> And if you look at Luke chapter 4, the end of Luke chapter 4, as he name drops her, when he does, it's like he's dropped a bomb in the room. Uh, so big is the impact of him name dropping this widow that it leads to murderous hostility from the religious elite for Jesus. Why is she so important? Why, why does this provoke such anger, her name mentioned in, in Israel? Well, the first thing to notice about her is where she lives. Uh, she lives in Zarephath, in Sidon, and uh, that is essentially Jezebel's hometown. It's Baal HQ. That's where this widow lives. God is sending Elijah to this Gentile woman, so not one of God's people, at the epicenter of Baal worship. <laughs> and God is sending Elijah to this Baal worshipper to speak God's word of promise to her and to ask her to trust that word. Do you see why the Jewish elite was so uh, angry as Jesus name drops this woman? It's the pattern that happens in 1 Kings. It was happening in Jesus' time. Uh, Elijah is taking God's gracious word of provision beyond the borders of Israel, beyond the borders of his people, because that word was being ignored by his people, as happened with Jesus. Truth is, if you go on despising God's word, 
his grace to you in his word, he will withdraw it. The God who has taken his word away from Israel is now speaking it to this woman beyond the borders of Israel. But notice this about her as well. As Elijah approaches her, this this widow with, with virtually nothing, his request of her only intensifies her plight and her need. She's a widow with nothing, and yet Elijah is asking her for water and food in a land with, well, well, nothing. You see there, verse 12? As expected, she is no provider. She is sure, she says, I, I've got nothing to offer you. So sure is she that the only plan she has left in life uh, is to gather a little bit of wood and make one last meal for herself and her son, and then they're going to die. What Elijah asks her is not possible. This woman and her son are broken. They're they're one meal away from death. That's what she says. Uh, But at this dead end, God has more to say. Elijah's response, it's perhaps the most common command from our God in the scriptures. Do you see it there? Don't be afraid. Go home. Make the meal you're preparing to make, but make it for me first. That's how much I want you to trust me. Even though you've only got enough for one meal, just for yourselves, make it for me first. And do you see why he asks her to trust? This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, is saying to you today. He's asking her to trust the word of God. The jar of flour that you have will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain again on the land. I reckon here with the widow, you have as clear a picture in the Bible as of faith as you will ever see. Into the uncertainty of this moment, uh, God says, don't be afraid. And as he said to many before, and he says to many since, God says to this widow, I want you to bet a lot on me. I want you to give me everything you have, and I promise I will give you everything you need. Trust me. This is what faith is. Faith is being sure that when God speaks to us, he is telling the truth. And so the widow trusts God. She trusts this fanciful promise beyond all logic, beyond all maths, uh, when you look at what she has in provisions. And yet, do you see it there, verses 15 and 16? It is just as God has said. And take note of this uh, with the woman, as it is with us, actually. It's not as though God suddenly provides this woman with endless jugs of oil and endless jars of flour like she's won the lottery. This is no Oprah moment. (laughs) No, faith is a daily thing. You see there, verse 15, every day God provided a new, every day she had to get up and again trust that word of promise. And in the end, even for us, though we may feel we are secure because we're propped up by so many things in our lives that we surround ourselves with, it comes down to the same decision. Can God be trusted? Are you sure he's telling the truth when he says, I want you with your life to bet the lot on me? Give me everything you have and I will give you everything you need. Do you believe that? Now, the litmus test, I think, of course, in our lives is our everyday lives. It's the decisions we make with our minds. It's what we do with our thoughts in our hearts and what we do with our feet and our hands, the way we live our life. It is, as the book of James in the New Testament says, faith without deeds is dead. God says, show me you trust me. It's not enough to say, yes, I believe you, God, but you know what? I need this backup and that backup and that proper. That's Baal think. God think is to say, I trust him today. Well, back to our story. Verse 17, day after day, God meets her needs. But one day, we're told, is very different from the days before it. 
On this day, we're told, the very life of her son fades before her eyes and he dies. Day after day, God has graciously provided for her. Then all of a sudden, the God who, who was provider stops providing in the fashion that she's grown accustomed to. Now, again, I suspect many of us have felt this, this, this constant provision of God in our lives day after day and then a sudden jolt. And we, like the woman, are left to try and make sense of it all. Why today? Why me? Why this? Well, well in one, in one level, uh, at one level, this woman makes perfect sense of it. She's an outsider. She's not one of God's people. You see what she says in verse 18? She knows better than Israel what has caused it. It's her own sin. Uh, she knows who she is. She knows she's worshipped Baal, not Yahweh, all her life. This false god Baal and, uh, rather than the true God. And before her eyes is, well, the very fruit of her sin, the wages of sin, death. But while she knows it, it's no easier for the knowing. I mean, has God singled her out? Why me, she says. Why, why send this man of God into my house just to shove my sin in my face? Why pick me for that? And here, it seems, seemingly, is, is the limit of God's power to provide. In this amazing passage, we've seen God's powerful provision in many different ways. But, but here, seemingly, is the end of the line. Water, yes, he can provide. Food, yes. Widows, yes. But sin and its horrific fruit, death, is surely too mighty an enemy for him. It's no wonder, do you see it there in verse 20, that Elijah, seeing this lifeless boy before him, cries out in pain to his God. The same God that he encouraged this woman to trust, he said, don't be afraid, he told the widow. Well, you get the vibe that there's much fear in the room at that moment. God's word is certain, yes, but so is death. Still, even now, Elijah, very much afraid, knows nowhere else to go but to his God. And so verse 21, he cries out again to God. In prayer, he prays to the God who provides life to give it back again. And verse 22, that's a remarkable verse. Uh, Elijah, in the same way Elijah hears the voice of God, now God hears the voice of his servant in prayer and responds. Uh, the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and he carried him down into the room, into the house, and he gave him to his mother and he said, look, your son is alive. Can you imagine that moment? I mean, what a reunion. Your son is alive. I mean, the woman was right. She was singled out to receive incredibly powerful grace from God. And her response, well, why wouldn't you? She trusts God. The God who lives gives life. The God who speaks can be trusted. His word is sure. So take in what we have seen in this story. Our God is Lord over nature. He is Lord over the nations, even Sidon, Baal, HQ, even Sydney, materialism, HQ. But is there a border that, that he can't cross? Is there a land where, where he, uh, God has no authority? Uh, when faced with death, does our God, like Baal and like our money and like human ingenuity and like power and fame and reputation and even vaccinations, does even God bow the knee before death? No. Your God bows to no man, no land, no thing, no power, not even death. And this story here in 1 Kings 17 is just a hint of his power over death. Jesus declares that this, this powerful grace that this woman seems to have been singled out to receive, uh, life again, uh, is actually open to any who would trust him. 
Jesus tells many stories like that, but perhaps the most amazing scene is in John 11, uh, where uh, we have a similar story of the widow's son, but this time it's one of Jesus' own dear friends, Lazarus. And by the time Jesus reaches Lazarus, he's been dead for four days. And into this situation, the family of Lazarus, very much afraid, Jesus says to them, don't be afraid. Your brother will rise again. And Jesus makes this startling promise in John 11 that blows anything we read in 1 Kings 17 out of the water. He says, not just, for, not just for Lazarus, but whoever believes in him will rise again. Do you believe that, Jesus says. So let me ask you this again. What or who has your one great passion? Where is your trust? Who has your future? Here is the one to confidently entrust your future to. Here is the one that you can wholeheartedly live your present for. He says to you, don't be afraid. (laughs) Bet the lot on me. Give me everything you have and I will give you everything you need. Trust me. However vast a man's resources, he is capable of one great passion. And so as we close, I want to encourage you as we go start this series together, there is actually two ways to live life. You can live life, uh, as, as most of our world does, in active uncertainty about what your one passion is. Your trust, your hope uh, can be in, uh, spread over different things. You hedge your bets and we run in all sorts of directions hoping that's where provision will be. Uh, that's Baal think. And almost every voice in modern Sydney says, go that way. Maximise comfort, maximise security, try to build certainty here. Do it passionately despite the fact that it leads to a dead end. Here's the other way to live. Jesus does not join the chorus of our city. He calls you instead to throw your one passion, your one life behind him, to live life passionately and fearlessly and with powerful certainty because of his word to you, because he is the one who holds your yesterday, today and forever in his hand, the one who can even stare down death for you, If you are going to throw your lot, uh, all that makes up who you are behind something, make it worth that passion. God says to you this day, bet the lot on me. Give me everything you have, heart, soul, mind, and I will give you everything you need. You can be sure, utterly sure, because God's word is trustworthy and true. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this?